Welcome to the Leadership Window podcast with Dr. Patrick Jinks. Each week through a social sector lens, Patrick interviews leaders and experts and puts us in touch with trends and tips for leading effectively. Patrick is an LSI certified leadership coach, a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, a best-selling author, award-winning photographer, and a professional speaker. And now, here's Dr. Patrick Jinks. Hello, leaders. Welcome to episode 68 of the Leadership Window. Glad you're along. I hope your week, your month, your very, very fast year of 2022 is going exceptionally well. Uh, We're going to make a little bit better today. We're talking with Tom Keith. He is the, oh, how do I describe this, Tom? I'll just say currently. He currently is the CEO of the Sisters of Charity Foundation of South Carolina. And I say currently and I pause because the clock is ticking. And on July 1, he is stepping into his next chapter of his life, officially retiring and passing the reins over at the Sisters of Charity. Tom was on this show. Go back and listen to that episode, by the way. I don't remember the number, but go back and look for Tom Keith on this podcast. Uh, What a wonderful episode we had with Tom the last time. Took the time to come over to the studio, as he has done today, and we're just thrilled to talk with Tom. And we, um, we saw each other, let's see, when was this? I think it was at the Together SC Summit where uh, we got together and said, you know, they, we, we celebrated Tom as a sector in the state and his, um, his legacy that, that he has left and is leaving the state, really, not just the foundation. And we got together and said, we need another podcast episode. Let's, let's kind of bring this home and talk about, you know, lessons learned and experiences. And for those listeners of this program, you really stay tuned to this because you're going to get some, just some rich insight on leadership. We're going to have just a informal conversation as we always do. But Tom is truly one of the just marquee leaders in this sector and in this work. And you just, you you just stick around. You'll see what I'm talking about. You're going to learn from him. You're going to appreciate him. You're going to feel good about leadership and your role. Tom, thanks so much for uh, carving more time out for me and coming over here on the other side of the on the other side of the uh, capital and and just checking in, I really appreciate it. It's great to be here, Patrick. Always enjoyed it. We had fun uh, last time, and looking forward to spending some time with you this afternoon. Well, we always enjoy each other's company and work. We've done some official work together, and yeah. we've had some great conversations unofficially. And I just love that um, that we get to do this again and get to treat our listeners to this. I, I you know, we we did do a little bit of discussing before the show about kind of what the tenor of the conversation is. I was most interested in bringing you on again to really talk about your, not just your legacy of leadership, but leaving a legacy of leadership. Yeah. I think you've got something to bring to the table for us in terms of what that looks like. And I know you're going to be very modest and say, well, you know, legacy is up to others and it's later on and you don't know, you just do your best. I know what you're going to say, <laughs> but, um, but you know, the, the fact is you have imprinted on this state and beyond, I know as the face of a, um, a very influential foundation philanthropic body in this state and the work that you've done and your leadership, your thought leadership. So 
there there is no doubt that you are leaving a legacy. How many years, by the way? Uh, well, I've been forty six in in the nonprofit philanthropic sector, and twenty nine with Sisters and the foundation itself, Sisters of Charity Foundation. Twenty six years was uh, we opened our doors on May first, nineteen ninety six. So it's been a solid twenty six years. I was the first CEO of the new Sisters of Charity Foundation, which came out of the sale of Providence Hospital mm-hmm. back in nineteen ninety five. And ju- tell tell us uh, again re- and remind me the structure of the Sisters of Charity because the the foundation in South Carolina is linked with and yet separate from uh, yeah, the, the yeah. yeah. The order, Sisters of Charity of St. Augustine, is an order of Catholic religious women based in Richfield, Ohio, which is just south of Cleveland. And they came to Columbia, South Carolina in 1938 and built Providence Hospital, mortgaged their mother house up in Ohio at that time, and then sold half of the hospital to Columbia HCA in 1995 and took those proceeds and created Sisters of Charity Foundation. So the sisters still have a presence in Ohio. Uh, they have ministries in Cleveland and Canton. And then here in South Carolina, we have three organizations, Sisters of Charity Foundation of South Carolina, which is about $115 million uh, funder, uh, and we have the South Carolina Center for Fathers and Families, which was birthed out of the Foundation's Fatherhood Initiative, and then Healthy Learners, which was birthed out of Providence Hospital back in 1992. So those are the three organizations, but we're all connected. We're all relatives to the Sisters of Charity up in Cleveland, where the order resides. And you recently, and I can't remember the number, but uh, didn't you recently cross a milestone in terms of dollars? invested in the communities that you serve here yeah 80 i think we just crossed uh 82 million uh of of funding and then and then we don't publicize but we also have leveraged probably another 45 million either in match funds or uh relate partnerships with others um both in and out of the state those are numbers i think a lot of foundations and nonprofits don't report and don't talk about enough probably and in my experience, it's probably well, it's, there are probably more leveraging that you just wouldn't have any documentation for. I mean, just the fact that, that you're a part of an initiative or a program or uh, a partner with an organization and the influence that brings that leverages other resources, they don't all cross financial books, but they are certainly influential. And we don't, I don't think we measure those or talk about those enough. I know in my years with United Way, we always talked about the annual campaign and how much was the annual campaign. And then, and then everyone wanted to know, well, out of the campaign, how much money did we give, you know, quote the agencies and uh, particularly in the last couple of decades of United ways, at least many of them around the country, there's much more impact that's happening that goes beyond the monthly checks that United way writes to its partner funded organizations. And those that just doesn't often get, documented so talk talk a little bit about your your thoughts on that because i'll bet it's more than 45 million it i think in in raw numbers in actual dollars that you can bank would probably be 45 but you're right if you look beyond that for example i think um kinship care is something we begin to invest in in 2014 and we had done a listening session down in charleston and funded some individual kinship care uh, programs around the state, Halos, um, which does a phenomenal job. But we felt like there was so much to be done, not only 
with uh, relatives that are raising grandkids and, and nephews and nieces uh, around the state not getting any subsidy. And so when we jumped in, uh, we, we kind of we, we've earned some credibility with other funders. And, and because of that, the Duke Endowment, who has a heck of a lot more money than we do, stepped up and have been now long-term funders of kinship care here in South Carolina, as well as the Annie Casey Foundation to provide support uh, in addition to what we could provide. So that would be a, an, an example of leveraging relationships that help pay for um, kinship care providers and also help pay for some policy work around getting and helping DSS see the value in, in treating these uh, individuals and families um, so they could receive the subsidy they, they deserve. That, that is a great example because what you just described, it, the, the Sisters of Charity was able to catalyze, you know, we use that term a lot, but catalyze something. Right. Um, or a lot of times a funder can serve as sort of the incubator or the venture grant fund that gets something going and then that leads to greater funding down the road. And again, not all that, that cross your books. I just, I just think that's important. Um, a lot of people don't understand, you know, how that all works, how influence within the philanthropic sector works. But uh, we'll talk more about Sisters of Charity and the work that you've done. But I, I do, I really want to focus on the concept of leadership. And in the two and a half decades that you've served in this role alone, Tom, I guess I would just let, maybe I'll just open the microphone to you and just get your thoughts on where do you feel like you have exercised your best in leadership and, and where might you have found some lessons along the way as you look back on this career, you know, where are some, what are some things you might do differently, but through the lens of leadership, what have you learned good and bad and, and what have been those experiences? Just, just, well, first of all, I think leadership is something that I have been learning my whole career and the last 26 years with Sisters of Charity has been a very great opportunity to, for me to learn and grow both internally with our staff and board and externally out in the field with uh, nonprofit leaders and grantees uh, across South Carolina. And one thing I, as a leader, I always try to be consistent with is always have an open door policy. You never want to be perceived of being as being in the ivory tower somewhere and boy, sisters are up there. We've got a beat on the door and we've got a grovel. Never wanted that. Very, uh, very interested in being equitable, being fair, being uh, transparent and and being hospitable uh, and kind to it's a hard job to be a nonprofit leader across South Carolina. It's easier for me because we have significant resources, but I see every day people working so hard out here trying to help others uh, around our mission of poverty. And a lot of times the, the hardest workers have the least money. The hardest workers have the least money in the state. So you go into grassroots areas that people are, limited budgets, but they're cranking out after school programs or food programs for kids or families, and they are working harder uh, than, than they deserve, but yet do it because they believe in the mission. And so you may have a million dollar organization that's doing great, and you may have a $85,000 organization, 
that is doing is great, but it's sometimes it's even harder for them because they don't have the resources to succeed. So me as a leader, I really wanted to make sure that we had a level playing field for everybody. You can be you know, a United Way, you can be, uh, you know, a well-heeled nonprofit somewhere, and you can be a grassroots organization. To me, they all have value, and you just find that connection to make it work. I have experienced that and observed that with you, and I think we talked about this the last time you were over, is the importance of relationships. You can sit there with all, with, with your 120 15 million dollars or whatever it is and put out rfps and accept grant applications and get a board of important people together and decide your favorites and who you're going to write checks to and stay you know um just aloof but but you're not you are in the trenches and you're out there and you're i would say your door is open but in my observation it's not just them coming to you either. It, you've, yeah. you've gone out that door to them and you've spent time in the field as it were. And what I've really noticed is that you've developed and led an incredible team who is out there developing and strengthening the relationships. You've created extensions of yourself and of the foundation that are, I mean, I, I would say, you know, I mean, you, you've got people like, you know, China and Donna who, I mean, they've they've established names for themselves. Uh, I would say as much as you have in Absolutely. some places. Absolutely, and that's the way it should be because that's the relationship culture that I think you've built. So I, I appreciate that, and I just want to acknowledge that that's not just words coming from you. I think that's you've truly lived that. Well, and to your point about people not just coming to us, I think funders need to be viewing every situation as an opportunity and we live in a laboratory and i think you know sometimes ingredients work for a recipe or whatever you're you're making and sometimes it doesn't so i think we're one of the things that we tried to do is go out into the community to your point and we had listening sessions we'd go to bennettsville or we'd go to allendale or some other orangeburg other places around the state to to engage community folks, not just leaders, but people that were living there, experiencing life, their challenges, uh, opportunities, whatever that that might be. And I think we gain knowledge on the ground of what was happening in those communities that informed our grant making uh, opportunities uh, based on what we were hearing. Because as I've said to you before, it's easy as a leader. Uh, to be transactional, you know, that's safe, meaning you can read a bunch of applications and you can say, well, this one's written better, that one's written better, but that really doesn't get to the heart and soul of what I think grant making is. And I think uh, grant making is about reaching people who are reaching people and helping people in those communities. So if you base it on what you read on paper, you're going to miss a lot of stuff. So that's one of the things that we try to do at Sisters is go out into the community, learn about that community, educate ourselves about what's possible, and then go from there. And I think because of that, we've been able to do some funding that might not have been on the main radar for everybody, but yet was good stuff. Well, talk about your mission because your mission is not award grants. If your mission was award grants, it would be, you know, come to us. Our mission is to award grants. And so it it all happens from from the backside. It's people saying, where can I find money? And they find you. But your mission drives you to say, 
you shouldn't have to say, where can I find money? We're trying to say, where can we make investments that improve the communities across the state? Right. And, you know, to me, it's a multi-legged stool, but a lot of people focus on our financial resources. And I understand that having been on the other side of the table before, everybody's looking for grant funds and a way to support and sustain their programs. But also, I think we, we need to look at our role as change agents and people that can make an impact, uh, whether it's through grant making or whether it's through creating a partnership with another funder or, or uh, coalition building of three or four different nonprofits in a community that hadn't even thought about working together. But we, we find a way to, to bring that commonality they have so they can work together. And it seems simple, but sometimes organizations are so focused on their own mission and what they need to accomplish that they don't see those opportunities. And I think that's put us as a funder and, as I say, a change agent in the community to be able to say, hey, look, here's what's possible. We'll help. That's what we do. And we get beyond, to your point, that grantee-grantor relationship and look at, hey, we're all willing to invest in this community uh, one way or the other. And we may not be living in Columbia, but we know we can help make a difference in Bennettsville, Allendale, Dillon, a lot of places. Yeah. I I hope that is a trend in the whole philanthropic sector. I, I, I've seen more of it and maybe it's, you know, the circles I'm running in and the people that I'm working with, but, you know, for example, Greenville has a philanthropic organization and a nonprofit alliance organization. They have recently said, you know, we're both in this to do the same thing and that's to improve our community. Why do we have to, why, why is it us and them? You know, we're really working together toward this. I remember a, a, a friend of mine, Hildy Gottlieb, I've talked about this several times on the show, came to a group of funders when I was in Virginia and and was talking just with, was with a funders forum. And she said, you know, we keep telling these nonprofits collaborate more, but we don't model that for them. That's exactly right. Why, 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 where's our responsibility in this? You know, are the nonprofits doing good and are they measuring their outcomes and are they, you know, good stewards of their financials? Do their financial statements line up? What about us? You know, what, what are, let's, let's, let's say grace over our own body of accountability. We have to do that, uh, Patrick, you know, self-evaluation is so important and we can't just ask that of our grantees and nonprofit sector. We have to be willing to look at ourselves and say, are we doing this the right way? Are we, are we listening to our grantees and nonprofit partners out there? Maybe we're, we've got a lot to learn that can help improve the sector. Uh, and, and you got to be willing to, to turn that mirror around and look at yourself and say, hey, look, we tried to do it this way or that way, and it's not perfect, we can improve by doing the following things. And I think flexibility and being willing to shift and change as a funder really drives you toward more success. If you get rigid and lost in process and, you know, dotting the I's and crossing the T's, you won't be as successful, I think, as you can be if you're willing to say, hey, this is 2022. We have an opportunity here to do some things that wouldn't have been appropriate in 2005, but they are now. And just be willing to, to change to better the work that you're trying to accomplish. So what are some of those things that the Sisters of Charity Foundation looks to as, 
your success metrics, even if they're, even if they're, you know, sort of soft metrics, it can't just be the outcomes of the programs that you're funding defines your success alone. Like how, what, what are the ways, what's your lens for that? Well, I think you have to be willing to examine, for example, and you know this, you helped us in the past with our uh, strategic planning, um, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. There are a lot of people out there, a lot of organizations that are grappling with what that means and how best to uh, to action actionalize that in their communities. So we felt like, hey, look, we can talk about it all day long. Uh, many of the communities we're, uh, and organizations we're working with out there are, are, are affecting communities of color. And we have to make sure we're doing what we need to do to not just talk the talk, but walk the walk. Mm-hmm. And we did a bunch of internal training and coaching with our staff and with our board. And we're looking at hiring practices, which we've changed. And we're looking at board governance um, makeup and how we recruit board members now versus how we used to. And I think we've tried to make a cultural paradigm shift as, as an organization so we can be better at what we do. Make sure you've got a diverse board and that diversity looks a lot of different ways. Make sure you got some 20 somethings on there on your mm-hmm. board, not just older people. Make sure you have all kinds of different types of thinkers on that board. So, um, you can, you can have perspective. And I think that's what, that's one example of how we, you know, we, we shift from grant making and talk about culture and then when we when an organization calls us and says, "Hey, you guys have done some of this uh, DEIB work. Can you help us?" You just read my mind because I, I, I'm just sitting here thinking you're one of those organizations that is you're doing you're doing more doing than you are telling, right? And and I, I've been saying people who know me have heard me say this probably ad nauseum, but. In the DEI space, I have been saying now for a while, we've got to go from preaching to teaching. Mm. And you know, there's, there's a lot of preaching out there and probably still need more of it in some places that just, you know, but, we're, we're, you know, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of people and you are too saying, when do we get to the doing? When do we just actually, what does the doing actually look like in practicality, in culture, and the, the way we do things and the way we the way we operate and you have done those things. And I remember during the strategic planning phase, when you were engaged in, uh, you started with your own team and said, we have to understand this ourselves. So let's get taught and teach ourselves and be continued learners so that we can just do it effectively. Right. And then, yeah, the people come to you. That's and beautiful. It's easy to get lost in as a funder to say, well, good grief. We're funding dozens, if not hundreds of mm-hmm. organizations that are helping uh, people that are struggling uh, communities of color and all that. So, but we didn't want to, we didn't want to rest on those laurels mm-hmm. at, at all. So I think it was, has been really important to us to learn about ourselves and learn where our blind spots are as a, as a funder and try to improve that. You know, what was happening, Patrick, I think around the George Floyd time is people were wanting to Take the quick road. Okay, I'm I'm X organization or or business. I'm putting in a million dollars, yeah. and it's going to be about DEIB. And then they, but what did they change? 
in their own culture. I'm going to put in a million dollars, but more important than the million dollars is that I make sure everybody knows I put in a million exactly. dollars. Exactly. <laughs> it's a marketing strategy it's, it's, almost. It's, a, it's, an, it's an expensive DEI ad is what it is. Yeah. And then you ask yourself, okay, did they change anything internally? Exactly. Did they change their hiring practices or the ratios that might be in place? So what we didn't want to do is put money in that space without knowing that we had done the trench work first so that and we formed an eib committee on our board uh that's made up of a lot of different uh people both uh both on the board and and outside of the board and it's been an extraordinary journey to learn and grow together well this might be a good opportunity for you to tell our listeners about uh, an initiative that you're supporting with Together SC uh, to on leadership development that you're 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 walking away from. I think this is going to be one of the, the the really the high high marks for you um, in your leadership uh, tenure. Tom is this support and championing of this new leadership development initiative in South Carolina. Talk well, about one of the things that we're we're doing uh, is working with uh, MDC uh, out of out of uh, North Carolina with the Duke Endowment and other funders in South Carolina. It's called Investing in Leaders of Color, where uh, we met last week and we have a cohort of six uh, in South Carolina and six in North Carolina that are going to go through this whole process of growing as leaders in uh, in their communities, not only as the head of a nonprofit, but also as a leader in the community. And we're, we're excited about that. And as you know, Patrick, because you've been part of it, is capacity building and leadership development is critical to the success of the nonprofit sector in South Carolina. It just is. And a lot of those organizations don't have the resources, or if they do, they don't automatically want to deploy those resources to leadership development. No, because it feels like a luxury and not, yeah. not to them, but to the, to many of their boards. That's right. And, and yeah, you're, you're singing my song here. This is, um, and we've long been since having the conversation around the term overhead yeah, and what that is. And the, really the fact that in, at least in my opinion, it's, it's really the wrong, it's, it's not a good term for the sector. The word is capacity and you've got to, you've got to have capacity to deliver on your mission. And what is capacity, if not the capacity to lead? Exactly. And you know, if your air conditioner goes out in your office, what are you going to do? You're going to fix it, right? You're not going to sit there and it goes to a hundred degrees in the office. You're going to spend the money. Same thing about leadership. I think we should view it that way. And if you are struggling as a leader or you have hit the wall and you need to grow and learn you need different perspectives it's a lonely job as you know to be a leader in nonprofit uh organizations sometimes uh you don't know where the next dollar's coming from you're working your tail off and you know we're doing a disservice to our nonprofit sector if we're not helping them grow in leadership how do we tom you just brought me i'm gonna go off on that just a little bit. How do we bring a, a greater sense and mindset of abundance to the sector? Is what you said is absolutely true, but we say that a lot about how struggling our nonprofits are and how little money they have and how limited the resources are. And it's true that they are. But that still seems to be, I guess I'm hoping I think for funders it. need to step up. I think funders and even business, uh, you know, we're willing to give a, a grant for the, you know, for direct services. We need to, as a sector, help 
the health and well-being of that organization above and beyond the services they provide to make sure that leader is taken care of. Well, too. I think that's right. Rather than looking, you know, over o- over your glasses at yeah. the non- at the nonprofits and saying keep your overhead low and yeah. and you know, I think I think that's a misnomer. Um, you know, I, we as a sector in philanthropy have to be willing to say we're put, and we've done that as you know in our work with uh, Madeline and Together SC, and you've been part of that. Is continuing to find ways for organizations to grow. The problem is. You can't classroom your way That's right. out out of uh, in, into uh, uh, into leadership. A lot of these organizations need a Patrick Jenks to come in and really roll up their sleeves and say, "You learned a few things at the workshop, which is great, but we need to take it a step further." That's a really good point, and I find myself engaging with more organizations at that level, Tom. I think there are more organizations now that are saying you know, yeah, we can do a leadership, we can do a team building workshop and say that, you know, a good time was had by all, Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Know, but, um, but I'm doing more work now with organizations in two and three year engagements where we're coming in and coaching teams of leaders over a period of time and helping organizations work on culture and yeah. work on these mindsets and the competencies and what that takes. And I think there, I, I like the trend of, of, of the, that I'm seeing of organizations that are embracing that and understanding that just what you said. It's not just a, I went to a conference. And there's no quick fix. There is no right. quick fa- fix. You have to spend the time. And organizations don't know what they don't know. I mean, boards think they're doing great oftentimes, and sometimes they are, and sometimes they're not doing nearly what they could do. And that's part of it, the board staff relationship and and what those expectations are and what cl- clarity of roles and responsibilities and what does true board engagement mean. That all comes with work, and it's not always easy to move the needle from inside the organization, that's where you, Patrick, come in with your experience and say, hey, let's look at this differently. And yep. I think that's the kind of thing that we need more of in the nonprofit sector for we're going uh, to create stronger leaders. Couldn't say it better. Couldn't say it louder. Hang with us, everyone. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. And Tom, we'll get into some of the, the, the good experiences and maybe the things you might have done differently over the time that you've been with us. Hang tight. Hey, this is Michael Wallace with Leadership Systems Incorporated. And on behalf of LSI, I want to say thanks for supporting our friend Patrick Jinks and the Leadership Window podcast. We've been partnering with Patrick for many years, and we are so proud to have him represent us as an LSI certified executive coach. As a mutual friend, we'd like to offer you exclusive rates on some of the same training that Patrick has received over the years, as well as some new experiences that we've been developing. Head over to leadershipsystems.com slash jinx to see the upcoming training events on our calendar and register today to keep learning and growing. Again, that's leadershipsystems.com slash jinx, J-I-N-K-S, for exclusive pricing on LSI's virtual and in-person training events. Thanks a lot. So we were just talking about the importance of leadership development, and I cannot say enough about the folks at Leadership Systems Incorporated. They're out of High Point, North Carolina. Dr. Jim Smith there is a 30-year coach and trainer at the Center for Creative Leadership. He is um, just an extraordinary, not only an extraordinary coach, but an extraordinary teacher and developer of coaches. So in your organizations, if you are looking to develop that particular skill set, which is an incredibly powerful one inside an organization, the ability to coach your team, 
LSI is the place to get trained for that. In my opinion, it's where I got my coaching certification and these, these guys are cream of the crop. And, um, as Michael just said, they've got some great rates for listeners of this program. So Tom, let's talk a little bit more about leadership and let's start with this one and put you on the spot a little bit. What is something if, as you look back on your two and a half decades at the sisters of charity, when we're talking about leadership and you look back, is there anything you would have done differently? And I don't mean regrets. I, I just mean, you know, looking back, is it kind of one of those, I wish I knew them what I knew now things. Um, yeah, I think so. I think we all probably face that. I, I, I probably stuck with a system a time or two that we had gotten used to that probably wasn't as efficient and effective as it could have been. And I probably waited longer. If I had it to do over again, I'd probably do it three years sooner. Mm. But that's a lesson you learn after you've been down that road. And so I, I can probably recite a couple of uh, dozen of those where you just, you don't know when to shift necessarily, but you learn afterwards you should have shifted. And I think it, it's, it helps you prepare for the next time that you need to shift. That is so good and so painful at the same time because you're <laughs> stepping on me when you say that. I, I mean, I've absolutely experienced that. And I had a good mentor tell me, you know, Patrick, you've got a good system for your coaching system, for example, or your system for walking organizations through strategic planning. Just make sure you don't get so bound to your system that you can't be agile to meet the custom, very unique needs, challenges, and opportunities that your clients have. And and it's hard because you build something, first of all, especially if it's a system you built. Yeah. You know, there's some there's some ownership pride and some authorship pride in it. And if, and if it doesn't work a time or two, well, it certainly isn't the system's fault, right? It's exactly. because these darn clients aren't doing it right. That's right. You have, you, but then finally you, it hits you right between the eyes one day and it's like, this is just not necessary anymore. Hey, I don't think this is a good system for them. Yeah. That's and right. we, I've gone through that and, you know, one of the things that I think we try too hard as funders to do is make the process more difficult than it needs to be. And that's one of the, the lessons I learned over time is simplify things. You, if you don't need all this information, don't ask for it. If you're not going to use that information for something down the road, forget about it. Let's just focus on what we need to know, make it easier on the applicant, make it easier on us and go from there. And, and that was a lesson learned because a lot of the best practices you start with is what somebody else is doing you know, in the field when we were getting started. So, you know, we've eliminated a lot of that noisy stuff that questions that aren't even worth asking. Uh, you, man, <laughs> the simplicity, you know, you've heard our brand construct, clarity, simplicity, and alignment. Right. And I was uh, talking with someone recently who said their, their, their last strategic plan was 47 pages. This is a very small nonprofit. Yikes. And I said, what's in that? And, oh, man, it is so, it is step by step. It is, spe like, well, is it strategic or did they get, I mean, a 47-page strategic plan. I think, I think we, I think when, when you ended up with yours, I think we had five pages. Yeah. And probably, you know, that was, that was large font probably, you know. That's like, right, yeah. Because if you can't get your head around it, the concept of, look, this is, this is where we're, I tell people all the time, Tom, to, yeah, and I know you've got, to, I love your feedback on this, but. I hear people say, well, now, is that a strategy or is that a tactic? Is that a goal or an objective? Is this a mission statement or a vision? I'm like, stop. Pretend there's nothing. There's no terms. Here are the questions. Why are you here? 
What is it you're trying to do? Yep. How will you do it? What will it mean when you do it? What's the best? Like, just ask those. Forget the labels. <laughs> we complicate this stuff. We well, do. But the SWOT analysis and the environmental scan and the, and the data. And this, I love data. I love all that stuff. It's very valuable. It's very informative. But it, when it gets to the point where that becomes when you're statement building rather than vision building, you've overcomplicated it. And, and it won't be useful. Uh, that's the the issue is to me is you can have a 47 page document with all this stuff in it but at the end of the day it, i believe it's going to collect dust and you're not going to use our five page or whatever it was was very dynamic you know we we fleshed it out through your leadership in helping us build it but it became kind of a working document not too heavy not too deep but gave us the concrete you know foundation if you will for where we needed to to improve well and something that you can flex as you need to as yes. well you know you got to be agile and adjust that thing it can't just be you know locked in stone how many like times have you heard people say well we can't do that that's not in our strategic plan <laughs> it's, like, <yeah. laughs> it's like yeah well maybe it should be well where what i hear more is we can't do that it's not in our budget <laughs> that, yeah and, and, and then the reason is because they create a strategic plan and then they create a budget and the two don't converse. Like uh, the, the budget is based on, well, what did we do last year and what tweaks do we need to make? Not, okay, it's budget time. It's time for us to figure out how we're going to execute on our strategic plan right. from the monetary standpoint. Right. Right. It's just some kind of, I've seen that a, a dozen times. Oh, I bet. That's it's all. Like, Whoa. Yeah. Maybe more, <laughs> maybe more, but you're, you're right. I, I think, to your point, strategic planning should be simple, understandable, and useful. And you you bring those forward, and at the end of the day, you know, hopefully your organization was like Sisters of Charity. We were able to actualize that and and implement in a way that was uh, – DEIB was one of the pillars. Well, I remember – what I remember about your team, and, and uh, uh, there's a number of organizations that do this and do it well – um, is that your strategic planning process, it was so evident in, in those rooms, in those meetings, that this was not just a process that it's been five years, it's time for us to do another one of these. It was, we understand that what we're building right now, we better be, we better be comfortable with what we put on this page because it's a commitment and right. we are pulling the levers. So let's get this right because this is going to be something that actually means this is going to guide our work. Yeah. And if you'll recall, one of the things we wanted to do was go deeper, not wider. That's right. Because we had so much, there's so much demand on the sisters for basic needs grants uh, that we love to do. They're so valuable to the community, but many of the basic need grants are going to be there year in and year out. And it's a, it's a reaction to a bigger problem often down mm -hmm. the road. It's a consequence of a, of a bigger problem mm -hmm. in poverty. So we want to pay attention and support those organizations that matters, but we also need to go back up here and find out the problem and the, uh, the causes and then build so fewer people will need that down here on the consequence side. And when you're going deeper versus wider, doesn't that mean you have to say no to somebody? It does. And how do you do it? So what's, let's, there's a leadership tenant. Like what have you learned from a leadership perspective? How does a leader effectively say no? 
particularly in the case of, you know, a like, grantee. Yeah. Well, I, it's not fun, but I do think that if oftentimes we say no, not necessarily because an organization is doing something poorly mm-hmm. at all. Oftentimes it's about limited resources and we can only fund so much and, and, and we have to prioritize and we want, we, we have to know as funders, how to, how can we make the greatest impact with the resources that we do have? So saying no to somebody is not a, um, an example of failure. Um, and I say this a lot to nonprofit organizations that we, we have to say no to. It's not about, you're not good. It's about how we need to focus our resources to make impact in a way that allows us to affect change in our communities around poverty and, uh, and areas that we feel like, uh, we are, uh, uh, making strides. And uh, sometimes that's on the systems level, sometimes in breaking the cycle of poverty. But uh, it, it's hard to say no, because oftentimes grantees or applicants are like, well, we failed. What, yeah. what do we need to do differently so we'll be get funded next time? Yeah. And I often say, look, it, it's, it's first of all, it's no guarantee that we're going to fund every organization. Mm-hmm. It's just not. And we want to help. And sometimes it's capacity. And then we'll say, you know, you need to learn more about grant writing or you need to learn more, of, be able to express yourself better uh, in a way. And that's when we work with you and Madeline and folks out there that can help strengthen uh, an organizational health, uh, organiz- yeah. with organizational health uh, in a way that allows them to function better. Yeah. And, you know, and I make it sound harsh when I say, saying no, you have to say no to somebody. And the, the truth is, and I know your foundation well enough to know that the, the, what, what the funders who are on mission and on point, as we talked about at the beginning of the show are often not actually saying no, they're just saying not this particular thing, right. Or not us or not now, yeah, you know, or not in this manner. And, and that often is, you know, let's, let's find a place where there is alignment between our mission and your mission. Right. Yeah. Sometimes there are assumptions that are made uh, that when we first opened our doors, a lot of Catholic organizations around the state mm. said, well, sisters of charity, you're, you're well healed. We're a Catholic organization. Well, where do we where do we, where do uh, we sign? Yeah, yeah. Where do we get our funding? And oftentimes it was like, no, you may be Catholic, but our mission is to serve, uh, uh, impact poverty in South Carolina. And that's not your mission. So unless we can mm-hmm. allot to your point, align missions, we're, we're going to be funding other organizations, Catholic or not, that give us a greatest chance to impact the communities we want to serve. What is something that you, leave here on July one saying, man, I'm glad I did this in terms of a leadership behavior, uh, an approach. Um, you know, what, what, what are the things you, you feel like, you know, I did this well as a leader and it, and it worked out. Good question. I I think I developed a skill of hiring good people. That's more of a management issue, but I always tried to hire people that were smarter than me hard workers, uh, could be taught 
in ways that maybe they hadn't reached their full potential, but were willing to get there. And I've been very fortunate. I've had some phenomenal staff. A lot of the staff have stayed. I've got one lady that's been there 25 years. Donna's been uh, with me seven and uh, with the sisters 20 and uh, others have just been been there. So, you know, that's kind of unusual in today's world. But I feel like one of the things that I really worked hard at and was somewhat successful at is getting uh, getting good staff people. And also the process of recruiting board members is critical to good leadership because if you and and your board don't recruit the right people to serve that aren't mission-driven and can't get the vision for the organization right, then that can be um, uh, – that, that can – be a self-destructive uh, uh, mechanism for success. And I think we've worked hard to try to get a diverse board, a board that were strategic thinkers and allowed us to take some risks. Because if you're going to do a good job as a leader, not only in philanthropy, but in life, you've got to take risks. And if, a, you know, what what is a good risk? Well, nobody really knows. But if the end, my philosophy is if the end result is going to have a big payoff, for people in a community or a sector or a, a population or a program, then it's worth trying. You know, we can't all stay in one place and never move left, right, front, or back uh, and be successful. We have to be willing to take risks. And yeah. that was my thing. I think you're right. The hiring might be a management uh, perspective, but you, the leadership side of it, um, if I can, if I can uh, say this for you, is. Um, <laughs> you've put them out there. You've given them the opportunity to shine. So yeah. the management side is, is the hiring. The right. leadership side is the empowering and the building up to where they are truly leaders because truly they are, they're very visible in, in the community and yep. they're, they're out there delivering They're they're, they're teaching, you know, yeah. they're not just creating really, they're, they're teaching on behalf of the sisters of charity. And so it's a powerful and, thing. To watch. And I try to teach them some key elements of good leadership. And one is be a good listener. You know, don't feel like you've got to be the loudest voice in the room. Mm. And, you know, you have the luxury of being able to sit back and listen to others. And you might learn something and you might be able to to use that for your own success later on down the road. So one of my key um, uh, lessons to teach uh, leaders within the organization is first and foremost, be be a good listener and don't don't be rigid and don't let process drive your decision-making, meaning, oh, well, that's not how we do things because our process won't allow that, or this is sort of against our, um, you know, our decision-making way of doing things, our system, or whatever it is. I, I've always felt like leaders that hide behind process and not that process is not necessary, but never forfeit an opportunity over process say, well, we can't do that. I mean, how many opportunities have people missed over the years and government's bad about that? Well, that doesn't fit into our, you know, our role or our realm We're you know, that's not, they'll give you a hundred reasons why it won't work. And my lesson to our, our staff is listen, if it requires you to maybe deviate from the process or how we do things, but it's worth it, then let's talk about it. Let's be willing to look at it through a different lens. And to me, that has been an important um, lesson to teach our, our staff and be humble. 
you know, you've, there's such an imbalance of power with philanthropy and funders and, and grantees. Be humble, uh, have a sense of humility, mm-hmm. level the playing field, make sure you, you are uh, connected with our uh, partners. Uh, I hate the term grantee grantor relationship. Partners, a, partners a better word. Yeah, yeah, it is is, and that's how we look at it because I think it's critical that um, you know. Otherwise, if you play that imbalance of power, people are only going to tell you what you want to hear. Mm-hmm. They're never going to tell you, you know, I got a problem here, Tom or Donna or or China, and I can either be honest with you and tell you what the problem is, or I can stonewall you. And the problem is just going to get worse, which and, is better. And you know, the relationship is going to that, dissolve. That's right. It's going to erode. Right. So, so we want them to have the trust in us that, you know, I may have to give you some bad news once in a while, funder, partner, but you know what? I trust you enough that you're going to help me get out of this situation and things will be better because I've included you, mm. not excluded oh, you. Beautiful. That's yeah. rich. What would you say are one or two high marks for you in your in your 25 years? What, what are the high moments, the ones that you really look back on and say, man, that was, that was fulfilling? Well, uh, on the initiative side, I feel like our investment in fatherhood, and that was a long-term investment, which was the smart thing to do. You couldn't just put three years of funding, five years of funding in fatherhood. Heck, we've been with uh, the Fatherhood Initiative and spun off the Center for Fathers, and they're celebrating their 20, uh, 20th year this year. And I think being able to willing to stay the course with something, see it through highs and lows, there are times that it was not good, but yet, knew we were playing the long game with fatherhood. I, th- I think that's been very sad. Now they're an $8 million budget, annual budget. They're serving thousands of men across South Carolina. The Center for Fathers is probably the top fatherhood program in the United States, used as a best practice. And I don't think any of that would have been able to bear fruit if we'd have bailed out financially in 1999 or 2000. But Lesson learned, be willing to stay the course in some things because it may take it a while to bear fruit, but when it does, it's going to to be a big payday. And so that was a great lesson learned there. I love that, Tom. And I love that that high point is still climbing. Yeah. You know, because the, the, as you said, the entity took off and is doing its own thing now and, and, and growing and strengthening and a new CEO coming on, I think with a lot of, a lot of vision and experience. One of the things that saved the state of South Carolina millions, I don't mean to get off on this, but is uh, when we went to see the family court judges back around 2000 and said, you know, you're locking all these guys up and they're not paying child support after you lock them up and the kids aren't benefiting. Nobody's benefiting. It's costing the state millions. Let's work together on an alternative. So we, we, work with family court judges around the state to have an alternatives to incarceration program. And the outcome of that is hundreds, thousands of men, rather than being incarcerated for 60 days, went through fatherhood programs, got job training, got their GED, had a better relationship with their kids and the mother of their kids, and now are employed many and Almost all of those employed ones are paying child support now. And the cost benefit to the state has been millions mm. of dollars since we in- implemented that in 2001. There, there's more of that uh, $45 million plus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
you know, and even I don't care what your politics are. Who's going to say, well, this is bad because uh, we're saving the taxpayers money by not incarcerating people. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, anybody could could get on board with that. And I think that's been the one of the highlights of our success with fatherhood. It's you don't know what it's going to look like from the start, but you know there's some potential there to do a lot of good things. And as you go along, you've you've really witnessed it. What do you anticipate is next for the foundation? And I know that's, you know, uh, uh, with a new CEO, they yeah. they'll have their own vision of that future. But what what's you know either for the foundation or for the sector? What what are you foreseeing over the next or hoping for over the next five to ten years? Well, first of all, I want to congratulate my uh, a good friend and. Hopefully she's learned a thing or two from me, Donna Waits, uh, who's going to be a magnificent leader, she's spectacular. What she's a choice. got, the, she's what a got choice. the heart and soul for this work. And, and Donna is a compassionate, uh, smart, um, fair person that was going to come in with our existing team. And that includes people like uh, China Phillips and Erica Wooten and Meredith Matthews, mm. Kim Fronapple, uh, Hiller Davenport, S.K. Davini, um, who are really, I think, poised and prepared to take this foundation to the next level. Uh, and I think you're going to be see more and more of the foundation not doing things individually but doing things collectively. Yeah. And I think that's what, you know, we talk about impact and success. The more co- we can do as a sector with the nonprofit community and the philanthropic community and the business community, perhaps public education, perhaps our penal system, the more we can partner with these groups, the more good we can do. And I think you're going to see the foundation over the next five years be more uh, invested in that area. Well, Donna's probably listening, um, and so uh, you know, heads up to Donna. You 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 need to get over here to the studio pretty soon too, and we'll talk about we'll talk about your vision and leadership That's lessons right. moving forward. Um, no, what a great choice, and I, I think what you talk about in terms of working collective. Donna's just the perfect person to lead that work. She'll be great. Um, what are you going to do when you when you leave? What's next for you? Uh, you know, I'm um, I've, I've been blessed uh, to be in. Uh, in the, I'm, I'm one of the few people, there are some, but can say from the day, two months after I walked out of off the college campus to today, I've been in the nonprofit mm-hmm. philanthropic sector from, you know, so that's my whole career. Most mm-hmm. people end up there. However, you know, maybe have done some other things, but I didn't, I was just like 46 years. So I, th- I think, um, I'm going to probably take some time to, think about what I'll be 69 years old in, uh, in a few months. So I'm no, not a spring chicken, but got some energy and maybe I'll come back around and see if I can't, uh, help some folks. I'm still on some different boards here in the, uh, in the area and across the state and, uh, might, might try to help uh, a few organizations here or there as needed. I, I'm not interested in uh, any big, uh, pro- uh overwhelming projects, uh, <laughs> at all. So, you know, We'll see. We'll, well see. Still trying to figure it out. Yeah, 69 is the new 69. 49. Uh, yeah. I like that. What are you going to uh, do for fun? Well, I'm going to take some trips. going to go up uh, maybe to uh, Canada and head down the uh, St. Lawrence River from maybe Quebec Ooh. City to Boston. That's one of the things we're looking at. Maybe go to the Balloon Festival out in uh, Albuquerque. That's amazing. Yeah. You've been there? 
I've, yeah. My mother and brother lived out there. Oh wow! I've and, just always been fascinated. And that by was that. A, yeah, yeah. It's an incredible thing. Yeah, they got uh, you know we got some phenomenal uh, national parks, and they're often, uh, in my view, not not underappreciated, but sometimes you just don't take the time to enjoy those. I've been to to Yellowstone and you know Jackson Hole and all that, but I've missed dozens of oh, beautiful yeah. places. There's, there's plenty out there. You yeah, could, man. You could never you could never see it all. Yeah. Um, Tom, I, let me say thank you, not just for coming over and doing this. I really appreciate it. It's always a rich conversation, but for your service and your work, I, I think that would be one word I would serve. I would uh, sum up your leadership from my perspective. And I, haven't been able to witness all 46 years of it, but, um, you know, the last five or six, certainly, and I, I'm richer for the experience and the engagement with you and, and just really appreciate what you have done and continue to do for people, just for uh-huh. people, you know, your, your, your people, your team, uh, the people you serve. Um, it's, it's truly a spirit of, of service. We talked a lot about, I think about servant leadership when you were here before, That's right. And I just appreciate it. I appreciate who you are and what you've done. And I'm glad our listeners got another opportunity to kind of hear from you because um, it's not every day that someone not only serves the entire their entire career in a sector, but makes the mark that that you have made and, and will leave on this organization. I really do appreciate it. What is um, What would be a final word from you as you encourage the listeners of this program in their leadership roles, which are some of them in, in the similar roles that you are and some of them in the nonprofits. We've got leaders from all sectors really that listen, but what's kind of the, the, the one thing that's on your mind these days about leadership that you think would just be good to share with everyone as we wrap? Well, I think leaders are such that uh, a leader who manages well and operates well in the best of times is is a good leader, of course, but a leader that can overcome adversity and mm-hmm. challenges is the best leader, I think. And I would encourage all your leaders out there to continue to ride the wave up and prepare for the downtime as well, because that matters. So uh, go team. <laughs> team. <laughs> it's all about the team. It's not about me. It's about you and everybody else. Tom, thanks again. Everyone, uh, you got it. I hope you're inspired. You should be. Lead on.